my name is Jordan, and uh, <clears throat> I'm the local pastor here with Church 21. How, how have you guys been enjoying this series so far? I got thumbs up. You know, I didn't expect any negative reactions, so I don't even know why I ask questions like that. <laughs> um, but we're in this series called Stories Jesus Told, <clears throat> looking at the parables, seeing how each parable functions to show us the world through the lens of Jesus. And of course, Jesus, Christians believe, he's God. And as God, his lens then is different than our lens, greater than our lens. His lens challenges our lens. His lens then challenges our sensibilities, the things we value. Jesus challenges us. That's what we see in these parables. That's what we'll see today. Over the course of uh, this pandemic, I've had the opportunity to to speak to a number of people inside and outside of our church community. Um, Enough that I think I've seen a sort of pattern emerge that when the pandemic hit, when everything was stripped away, when you you couldn't be celebrating with friends, when you couldn't travel abroad, that all stopped. When that stopped too, that for, for many of you, you were left feeling sort of exposed feeling aware, maybe for the first time, of your lack of desire for the things you knew really mattered. See, whereas before you had work and school and maybe all these other commitments, now that those were, were taken away, you're left thinking, well, I thought, I thought that. I thought that was the reason that I didn't have time to pursue God harder. But it wasn't, was it? Well, what is it? I'm supposed to be finding this satisfaction in Jesus and it... It's not cutting it. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the problem wasn't those things. Maybe the problem is actually me. Maybe you can relate to this. I certainly can relate to this feeling that at times in my life, knowing that God was supposed to be my everything, supposed to be my all, my Lord, we would say, and yet feeling actually quite half-hearted, lukewarm, What you need to know, I'm going to frame this around this idea today, is that you're probably, if you were like me, hedging your bets. What's hedging your bets? It's where you diversify your investments. You put some of your heart value in Jesus and the rest of it's in other people and other things or places or whatever. And those things are actually safety nets. Jesus lets you down. You hedge your bets. Why do I say this? Well, because right before this story that we're looking at today, Jesus has been in an interaction with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and he's told them, you cannot love God and money. And I think the reason why some of us are lukewarm, we need to realize that somewhere, somewhere deep down in our hearts, we have done what the Pharisees did in reply to Jesus, and it just simply says that they scorned. They scorned. No, Jesus... Now, we can love God, and we can love the riches of this world, and we can love the cares and pleasures of this life. It's not an either-or, it's a both-and. We can hold them on the same footing. And Jesus is saying, no, you cannot. You cannot, because inevitably, if you try and love God and the riches of this life, that will take on a life of its own and end up overtaking you. You will become half-hearted. You will become lukewarm. And Jesus is calling us to be 
all in. What would it take for you to be all in? Maybe COVID has exposed that to you. What would God have to say or do to get you to be all in? That's the question we're looking at today. I'm going to come back to it. You don't, don't answer me out loud, obviously. But hold that in your head. Listen, <clears throat> the parable that Jesus tells us today about the, the rich man and, and Lazarus, he does so by talking about challenging, like I've said, talking about sensibilities, taboos, you know. And it's been read, so I'm going to pose it to you. What are the two taboos, things we're uncomfortable talking about, that Jesus touches on in this parable to you, the audience? Yeah, death and one more. Yes, hell. I'm going to group those, so still another one more. Ah, <laughs> uh, what are the two taboos? Am I mumbling, Dwight? Uh, oh, all right, all right. Money, there we go. Hell slash death. And money. Jesus challenges through this parable our sensibilities on those. Um, so if you have your Bible, please turn with me. Luke 16, verse 19. I'm going to be going verse by verse. <clears throat> verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, to you, the audience, based on this description here, what would you say describes the characters of this rich man? Throw some things out for me. Greedy. Lavish. Stylish. There we go. Balling. All right. That's good. That's good. So we got a baller, a lavish baller here. (laughs) But he's right. Joel's right. He's a baller. He's dressed in purple. That's the most expensive dye. He's... He's got it all over him. It says he's got fine linen. That would have been Egyptian underwear. I mean, it's some humor here. He's dressed expensively right down to his undies. Cackle, yes. It says he feasted every day. Feasting, he's rich. Requires preparation, especially back then. No microwave, right? Servants. Do you think he let his servants Sabbath? No, it says he feasted every day. No, t- no breaking for the servants. I want my feast today, sumptuously. Hmm. This is the description of somebody who's living lavishly, self-obsessively, not caring about his servants. This is the description of the rich man. But there's also the poor man. Verse 20. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Covered with sores. He's not just poor. He is sick. And he's not just sick. It says he was laid. He was carried there. He could not walk. Invalid. Who knows why? Sick, poor, invalid. Brought there by friends and villagers. Why do you think his carriers brought Lazarus to the gate of this man's house? Why this place? Why this gate? Open to get some money. Yeah, why? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's the guy with resources. There's a guy who is poor and is just on the edge of life, 
And there's this guy who actually has a way to be able to provide for him. He's got his best chance there. Bring him there. And does he get help there? No. Verse 21. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich men's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Desired to be fed means he kept desiring. He did not get fed. He did not get help there. This is not the sort of vice, I'm hungry and... My neighbor's barbecuing, and oh, I can't bear it. You can go to the fridge, okay? You're going to be okay. There was no fridge for Lazarus to go to. This is an ongoing psychological torment. The guy is feasting sumptuously every day, and he's just right outside, and he, small quarters, right? He can hear it every day, on and on. And it says, the dogs came and licked his sores. I mean, it's kind of thing, it sounds bad, but... I think it's actually saying that this is the one good thing he had going for him. The dogs showed him compassion. Probably the guard dogs. More compassion than even that rich man. And he dies. Like all of us do. And the rich man died as well. And so we get this glimpse beyond death. Verse 22 and 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, I'll stop here, two locations mentioned, the rich man in Hades, and the poor man at Abraham's side. What's Abraham's side? Well, you might remember at the Last Supper, John reclines at the side of Jesus. This is similar language to say, Lazarus is at a banquet with Abraham, who is a righteous man. Lazarus is an honored guest at the banquet of the righteous. And Hades, well, that's the realm of the dead. Well, what is, is, is this also hell? Well, that's not super clear. It's not the word that's normally used. It's the word Gehenna instead of, Gehenna is usually used for hell. Um, but this is certainly post-death by what you can see here. You'll notice verse 27 that the rich man's relatives, they're still alive on earth, Right? So no final judgment has taken place. This is sort of a pre-hell before hell, if you would have it. And so the rich man is there. He is in Hades. And it says in verse 23 that he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. This is a terrible scene. This is a terrible scene. The rich man knows Lazarus is up there. You can see in it, there's like a complete reversal. Even that phrase of the beggar, have mercy on me, is what a beggar would cry out, is now on the lips of the rich man. And you might expect, well, in this torment, then he must, he must have changed. You might expect, and I was wrong. But no, you don't see that. Instead, you see, send Lazarus, send him to cool my tongue. He's still giving orders. He's still living in that same value system that he had before. I'm rich. I matter. You might expect him to say something like, help me get out of here. What do I got to do? But does he? Does he? No. What does he do instead? 
He tries to bring other people in. Hey, get Lazarus to come down here and help me out. This is the extent of self-absorption. This is the extent of an ongoing, willful rebellion against loving God and loving the one who is made in his image, his neighbor, Lazarus, vulnerable at his gate. It's a trajectory of willful rebellion that started in his life and continues right into the life beyond. Death, endless. A rich man who will, we see will never change his mind given this. His state is fixed. You even see that in verse 26. It says, besides all this, between you and I, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able. There are no second chances in Hades or hell. Guys, this is hard for us to grasp. This is a terrible reality. This is a earth-shattering, mind-boggling, soul-terrifying reality that hell is real. Hell is an awful place. If you hear anything I say today, it's run to Jesus. He's the only hope we have. He's been to hell and come back to tell us about it. He's conquered it. There's hope. I realize that talking about hell, I mean, this obviously this offends our modern sensibilities, right? They're like, ah! Guys, time is short, but let me just say this. For some people, hell is actually comforting news. It's hard for us to get this in the West, right? We generally live pretty comfortable lives. The weight of this doesn't sit on us. But for those who've been wronged, for those of whom they've been sinned against, exploited, raped, the terrors of life, murder, theft, debauchery. Hell is actually good news and it says that there is justice. That what happened to you is not going to be swept under some giant cosmic rug. No. You matter. The justice of God is sure. You see the justice of God In the setting of verse 25, it reminds us of that, the great reversal. But it also reminds us that in the same way God takes these sins that have against you been done so seriously, he takes the sins that you have done seriously as well. Right? And we immediately think, well, this rich man is a real prick. I'm not self-absorbed like that. Self-absorbed people, I mean... They basically don't notice of you. They make the conversation always about themselves. You can't correct them on anything because they're super defensive. They're only your friend as long as they can get something out of you and then you're gone. I'm not self-absorbed like that. But we need to listen here. Do you understand what Jesus is doing with this parable in its context? What Jesus is doing is he's painting in these broad, bold, brush strokes, this high contrast painting. This is a caricature of a self-absorbed individual of which we are all actually self-absorbed individuals at some point like that or another. Well, why does Jesus do this? Because he's trying to get the attention of those Pharisees 
Remember those Pharisees who say, you know what, you can love God and you can love money. It's not a big deal. It's a both and. And Jesus is like turning up the contrast in this picture and saying, no, no, you can't. You don't think it's a big deal, but it's actually a big deal. You cannot hedge your bets with me. It's all in her. It's nothing. Don't hedge your bets with God. It's an all in or nothing sort of thing. This is why Jesus turns up the contrast. Don't live your life half-heartedly. Jesus has given everything to you, and so the only proper response is to, by his spirit and in his power, give everything back to him. And so what is the hope? Well, it's that Jesus, like I just brushed on before, but let's explore now. Jesus He went through hell so that you could spend life with him at his side for eternity. He was not afraid of hell. He was not afraid of sin. Actually, it was his justice that compelled him to go to that cross, to take it for you and his love. Both of them converge together. They don't contradict. They coalesce. They summit at that cross. So that obvious response man so great was jesus's love to you so great was his justice against sin the obvious response of us when he goes all in like that for us is for us to go all in for him don't live half-heartedly go all in for jesus this is the true and proper and right response and so that we don't have to be surprised like this rich man was to find out where he was you don't have to be surprised This is Jesus' warning to you. Man, if you're living your life half-heartedly, watch out. Watch out. If you don't see any fruit, if you have have no sense of, ah, I want to love my neighbor, that overflow of generosity, Jesus is saying, watch out. You don't have to be surprised like this rich man. I went it all in for you. The proper response, go all in for me. And you can have security in that. Jesus said, The gates of hell won't prevail against his church. Jesus is building his church. That's us. That's you. That's me. We are guaranteed to be spared from hell in him. When you are united in him, that's how we can conquer like the gates of hell is because we're united with him. He's already gone in and conquered it. Now we take, we're taking hell back. You know what I'm saying? This is the giant reversal because of Jesus on the cross. And you can have that assurance when you put your trust in him. And oh man, it's not the power of hell breaking loose now. It's the power of heaven breaking loose in you. And you need to know that's, that's an option. That's available to you. And that changes everything. So it's not, you know, the love of your neighbor that's going to save you. It's not being poor that saves you or being rich that saves you. The rich man knew that. I mean, you can be greedy poor. The rich man knew it wasn't his riches that put him in hell. He says it in verse 30. My brothers, they need to repent. He knew it. See, what was his dealio? He put his identity in his riches. He put his identity in his comforts. He put his identity, I mean, he just, he basically did what we do. You know, you just don't rock the boat. Just go through life. Don't never mind those people and their needs. You know, just, just go along. He was, his identity was in his riches. He was literally the rich man. And Lazarus, you know what his name means? The one who God helps. He put his identity 
and being dependent on the only one who could help him. And so that's what repentance is. Throw your trust, throw your dependence on the only one who you can actually depend on, who has rated hell for you. (laughs) So much was the love of God. (laughs) Cling to him. Cling to him. And he will keep you at his side for all eternity. I want to make four quick points before I look at the rest of these verses. Coming out of this very heavy topic of justice, death, hell. Point one, get answers. I know this offends all our modern sensibilities. I can't touch on it all now. But don't just go home and be like, I don't know about this thing. I'm struggling. I'm going to just kind of operate in a half in, half out because I can't settle my questions on that. No. Get answers. There are many good answers out there on the justice of God. Get answers. Don't stay on the fence. (laughs) You can't. This is a forced, urgent, and momentous decision. It's forced and that we all die. It's urgent and that you don't know how long you have. It's momentous and that all of heaven and hell and eternity hangs on it. (laughs) Don't stay on the fence. Get answers. Share Jesus. He's that good. (laughs) Do I need to say anything more? Get answers. Don't stay on the fence. Share Jesus. And let it be his love that motivates you. I'm trying to major on the majors in what Jesus is teaching on in this parable. But I like to think of it like love is the engine and destiny is the slope that car sits on. So don't let hell be the engine. Let love, let what Jesus has actually done for you, his love and going to the cross, be the engine that you share. And man, if that engine isn't there, if you're not motivated by the love of God, well, man, you take out the engine, you still got the slope. But don't let that be the primary driver. Let the love of God be the primary driver. So get answers. Don't stay on the fence. Share Jesus. Let his love motivate you. Let's get back into the text. Verse 27, he said, I beg you, Father, send me, or send Lazarus. Where am I? He said, beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So here again, we see this rich man continuing to ask Lazarus to serve him. And now he's like, this is like Father Abraham. He's like butting heads now with Father Abraham. You know what I'm saying? This is just, Abraham, you just don't get it. You can't just warn people of hell with prophets and people and books. No, they need something concrete. They need an experience. They need a resurrection. Well, they got a resurrection. That didn't help, did it? I've talked to people. I mean, this is a common thing. I would believe if I had, you know, I was talking to someone at university. I would believe in God if he struck that tree over there with a bolt of lightning right now. Oh, really? Would you? Or we get the impression. We get the impression. How did you answer that question at the beginning? What would God have to say or do for you to be all in? Did you answer it by an experience? You think that's what it's going to take for you to move from lukewarmness? What is scripture, what is saying here, what Jesus is saying here is that his scriptures are more than enough. God is not 
obligated. He will not be held culpable. He is perfectly just and giving you his word. And that is enough. The scriptures are sufficient. I think sometimes preachers, you know, me included, right, we give that impression that experiences are what you need by the stories we tell, right? You have to have this sort of Holy Spirit, crazy, crashing, miraculous moment in your life. I mean, I think of my friend Jonathan. There's a guy some of us know, not this Jonathan, different one. He was DJing in a, a club about three in the morning. He heard the audible voice of God, and it completely changed his life. Absolutely incredible. And we tell these stories because we want to move you. But I think the danger of that is that you start to make that your expectation. I need an experience in order to go all in with Jesus. Don't do that. <laughs> I have a prof who used to say, we let the, ex- the extraordinary experiences of a few... Uh, yeah, we let the extraordinary, <laughs> we make the extraordinary experiences of a few the expectation of the many, right, when we do that. <laughs> but no, we have ample warning of the judgment of God. God is not obligated to give out these kinds of experiences. The scriptures are sufficient. I think what we need to do more as preachers is tell stories like that of Andrew Fulford's. He's also a member of our congregation, Andrew Fulford in high school didn't have Christian friends as far as I know, picked up a Bible, started reading through it for for, for fun, and became convicted of his sin, moved to belief by his spirit, led his parents to the Lord. I mean, this story, if you think about it, is just as miraculous, just as much a move of God, and it's authenticating what Jesus is saying here. His scriptures are more than sufficient. God is living, his word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing right to our hearts. And when we grasp that, that's actually comforting, isn't it, right? Because that means, that means his word being sufficient means that we have all the equipping we need for life and faith and holy living in, in Christ Jesus, don't we, right? In fact, Jeremiah the prophet would say, God's word when he, when he ate it, when he meditated on it. It was the joy and the delight of his heart. Mm. Is that the case for you? Hmm. Do you trust God's word to be enough for you? The rich man didn't, right? If you think about it, he thought, you know, my circumstances must indicate to me that uh, God has blessed me. I'm of Jewish stock. I'll be fine. So much so that he just didn't bother slash ignored slash I don't know. Didn't look into this whole loving God with your whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. Loving his neighbor made in his image, Lazarus, as himself. He ignored it. And this is what we tend to do as well, isn't it? Ignore what God says. We we excuse it. We're maybe embarrassed by it. It offends our sensibilities. Even stuff like this hell and money conversation, right? And so we ignore it. When we do that, that's evidence that we do not trust God's word to be enough. Don't do that. Don't ignore God's word. You need it. The other thing we tend to do is we outsource it. <laughs> we outsource it to another. I mean, you, you, you can do this to me. You can make me the source of your word. And I'm like, don't do that. I, can't, I will not meet the needs that you have <laughs> for your Christian life. <laughs> okay? <laughs> 
like actually think about, or, or we do it to our friends. We have this friend, he's really spiritual. Whenever I need to know what God is saying, I call my friend. It's good to call your friends, man. But like take time yourself to be with the Lord. When was the last time you actually, you knew it was the voice of the Lord that spoke to you to, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to challenge or rebuke you, and not some podcast or some devotional book or, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? See, this is evidence. These are diagnostics. Do I trust the word of God to be sufficient to me? Don't outsource it. You know, it's often, it's that we don't bother to do the hard work of, of searching the scriptures, right? I, um, when my wife first came to faith, there was a woman that, that mentored her. And Sandra, my wife, asked her once, you know, how, how do I know I'm hearing from the spirit? To which this woman replied, well, you'll know the voice of God if you're reading your Bible. And, and that, that kind of sh- shocked slash convicted, you know, that was Sandra, like, you know, it's, it's, so, it's so simple. If she actually wanted to know the voice of the Spirit, well, she just sort of had to put in the hard work of, of knowing what he already said, right? Then she'll, she'll recognize his voice. This is his voice. He's already spoken so much. Why not learn to tune into it? Right? So it's through reading that we learn the felt experience of hearing from God. From God. God speaks. It's through Scripture we also learn the heart of the Father. We learn to know what his desires are, what his heart is for us. What his justice is, how real that is, how much he loves us, he forgives us. That he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, his kindness towards us. All of this, part of the heart of the Father. He gives us, through scripture, discernment to be able to discern prophetic words and gifts and all of this kind of stuff, dreams, whatever. Right? The scriptures are the basis of all of that. The scriptures then are Sufficient. <laughs> the scriptures are sufficient. But, final diagnostic. If you say that Jesus is Lord, but then you find yourself going to Reddit or Wikipedia or whatever for questions about work and life and marriage and never bother to do the hard work of searching the scriptures, that just might be a ni- another diagnostic that you do not actually trust that God's word is sufficient. And trust me when I say this, I am a geek. I love, I believe all truth is God's truth from archaeology to philosophy, right? But how are you going to know it's true? Like, it's only true as long as it corresponds and coheres to the truth that is already found in Scripture. And how are you going to know that if you do not do the hard work of knowing what God has already said? Hmm. The Scriptures are sufficient. Do not outsource, do not ignore the word of God. Trust that his word is enough for us, and it definitely is. So we can end with that. Trust God's word reveals in scripture. And God's word revealed in scriptures point us to Jesus, the word ultimately revealed to us, the final word who came down from heaven and delivered us from everything we're talking about here, from sin, death, hell, And so we can respond with joy. We can respond with joy that he alone can fill and satisfy our hearts. You see, he has said and done enough for you to be all in. 
And so you can be all in. You don't have to be half in. You can be wholly in because he is more than enough to fill and to satisfy the longings and the desires of your heart. Let him be Lord of your life. That is what he longs to be in your life. Let's move into a time of response. First through prayer, Father. I thank you that you are here by your spirit. I thank you that your word is more than enough. Father, I pray that you would help us not ignore it, not outsource it, but run to you. And we would find it filling us with being a joy and a delight to your heart as we have that felt experience of hearing from you. Lord, would you speak through your word to us? And Lord, I pray for anybody here who is thrown into conviction. Lord, who senses the weight of hell, who senses the weight of your judgment against them. Lord, would they be all in for you? Would they not resist any longer? Would they repent and flee to you as the shepherd, the bishop of their souls? Jesus, would you move in our hearts tonight? Capture us, take us. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.